Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book in the study of religion, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with John Modern about this great new book, Secularism in Antebellum America, which was published with University of Chicago Press in 2011. The notion of secularism is something that has ubiquitous presence in contemporary society. And while there is a general everyday use of this term, meaning something like not religious, the understanding of this word has shifted throughout time. In this book, we are presented with a complex narrative that examines the vocabularies, styles of reasoning, and imaginings of social life that enabled people to engage, quote, true religion. Modern employs secularism as an analytical lens to examine different aspects of modernity, and especially whether people define themselves as religious or not. Rather than seeking the causes of secularism, Modern offers a thick genealogical investigation of, quote, novel experiences, or the local effects of secularism, which he found in evangelicalism, Unitarianism, phrenology, spiritualism, early anthropology, and prison reform. This rich book about 19th century U.S. religious history is too expansive to try to summarize, and in in our conversation we barely scratch the surface of the amazing history modern offers. During the interview we discussed Herman Melville's Moby Dick, metaphors, ghosts, spirituality, machines, ethnographic inquiry, Sing Sing Penitentiary, personal agency versus structural power, technology, storytelling, vinyl prayers, and John Murray Spears' sexual encounter with the new mode of power, among many, many other things. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Hello, welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with John Modern about his wonderful book, Secularism in Antebellum America. How are you, John? I'm doing well, Christian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for making some time and uh, sticking with me and making uh, this this new book that's now a few years old uh, still fit into into our schedule. So I, I appreciate you being patient with that. Um, I, I guess uh, before we get going, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps people that have been influential in how you approach the study of religion, either uh, through books or through mentors that you've had. Sure, sure. Yeah, no. Um, well, uh, I think uh, I arrived a little bit late on the scene, uh, I think, in terms of studying religion and the life of the mind that uh, I find myself uh, inhabiting right now. Um, I grew up, uh, as some people might know, I've read, I've read an, uh, an article on this a little bit called My Evangelical Conviction. I grew up in a a religious household, uh, an evangelical household, in which uh, there's a lot of religion, but not much opportunity to uh, establish any kind of perspective or analytic perspective upon it. Um, I spent most of my younger years uh, going to church, swimming, and doing a lot of math and science. <laughs> um, and I actually, and actually, when I went to uh, when I went to college, uh, well, I swam in high school, and I was a pretty good swimmer, and uh, and I grew up in Akron, outside of Akron, Ohio, in a kind of lower middle class family. And uh, because I was a, an accomplished swimmer, um, uh, I, I was able to sort of jump a lot of class ranks pretty early. 
And so I was able to attend uh, an elite private high school um, in Cleveland for for swimming. And uh, then I got into Princeton, uh, predominantly on SAT scores and swimming, right? Um, And so as I go off to Princeton in whatever year it was, 1989, my grandmother, who was a sort of the religious center of our family, I will never forget this. Um, She tells me, she's like, John, whatever you do, whatever you do, do not take a course from any of those professors in religion because they (laughs) don't believe in God. (laughs) And so, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, that, that sort of, uh, I don't know where that fits in my narrative at all, but I, so I get to, I get to Princeton and I'm still swimming, doing a lot of math and science, um, still. And it was around my sophomore year, end of my sophomore year, that I took a class with David Carrasco, um, who is a sort of a uh, scholar of, of Native American religions. And I just kind of fell in love with religious studies pretty pretty quickly. Um, and uh, through David Carrasco and uh, people like um, uh, uh, who else? Um, Eugene Lowe, um, Herman Tall. Uh, yeah, some of these people who uh, were very influential in college, where I, I began to sort of see religious studies as a kind of giving me perspective, not only on my background, my religious background, but also a kind of math and science uh, sort of formation that had that I had come from. And so I ended up majoring in religious, religion at Princeton. I, I ended up writing a thesis uh, that was uh, on Elvis Presley and Graceland using a lot of Iliadi and Victor Turner and uh, all those kinds of good theories to try to make religious sense of a popular culture phenomenon. And uh, I just remember having a good time doing that, but still I have not been converted, fully converted to the discipline of religious studies because I got out of college and I was still thinking about going to law school. And uh, I worked as a paralegal assistant in Washington, D.C. for a year, in which I made a lot of copies, scanned a lot of documents, and and did all those kinds of good stuff. And I ended up actually deciding not to go to law school, deferring law school. I had, I had been admitted to University of Virginia Law School, and I decided not to go um, and actually go back to uh, pursue a master's degree in religion at Miami of Ohio, um, where I worked with uh, Peter Williams and Alan Miller and uh, Keith Tuma. Um, and Liz Wilson, and there I sort of uh, was able to sort of, I think, realize for the first time what the discipline of religious studies could be, where um, you were free to study uh, pretty much anything you wanted to study in pretty much any way you wanted to study it. At least that's what I thought about when I was uh, getting my master's degree. And I ended up writing my master's thesis on the beat poets um, and the, sort of their, their lives, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, what they were up to in the 1940s and 1950s, and, and thinking about their literary careers and their sort of intellectual trajectories in terms of a kind of post cold or a kind of post-war moment in American history, but also trying to situate them within a kind of religious framework, thinking about how they uh, were pretty much part of what we might call now a kind of discourse discourse of spirituality, kind of making up your own religion within the context of uh, these other sort of institutional formations. And so from there, I went to UC Santa Barbara and uh, had a, a, a kind of an amazing um Amazing graduate school experience there, working with Catherine Albanese, Tom Carlson, Giles Gunn, 
Richard Hecht and Roger Friedland, these these professors who I think modeled uh, for me not only what it meant to be, uh, you know, a kind of gifted, um, you know, uh, sort of intellectual, but also uh, teaching too. the idea in the way in which they were able to share uh, their excitement, their enthusiasm, but also their intelligence with their students. And it's uh, something that uh, I really am very lucky to have gone to UC Santa Barbara and to have worked with those professors, but also to have, uh, you know, sort of established my peer group for, for my career. All my best friends are my graduate school friends. So uh, that's, that's, how, that's how it all came, came to be. Yeah, and you, you, uh, you give a shout out to a, a lot of these people who are now also uh, very well established from your, from your peer group there. Yes. Uh, and they, yes. From, from what I know of their work, it seems like a lot of you take very kind of similar uh, approach combining kind of historical analysis with uh, religious studies theory and and you kind of outside of the discipline as well. Um, could yeah. you could you talk a little bit about how this this project uh, kind of st- developed? Uh, how how did this kind of project, which covers a a vast <laughs> array of different phenomena, how did this how did you conceptualize this? How did this all come together into a book? Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, um, at UCSB, I wrote my dissertation, um, on a reception history of Moby Dick, which, uh, was much more of a kind of religion and literature project, you would say. Um, and so much of my dissertation work was establishing, you know, Moby Dick and Herman Melville. Um, as uh, a kind of a, a, relig- a book of what you might call a kind of cultural metaphysics or theology, and also Melville as a religious critic of culture, and then trying to trace out that in the 20th century in the ways in which Moby Dick gets picked up beginning in the teens and 20s in America by different generations of critics, intellectuals, and artists, and trying to make the argument that, okay, there are these, there's this tradition here that's really interesting, and it's a tradition that needs to be taken seriously if you want to understand anything about religion and culture. And so I ended up with a dissertation that was incredibly fun to write, incredibly um, productive in terms of my own intellectual trajectory, but also ended up with a document that was kind of unpublishable and also not recognizable to the field of American religion. Uh, in which I was trained and sort of set up to get a job in. Um, and so this is the wonderful thing about UCSB, right? They give you a lot of rope to uh, do your own thing, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you sort of can can end up uh, making a mess of things a little bit. But I was very lucky to have gotten a visiting professor gig at Haverford College. And I had a three-year gig there. And that gave me an opportunity to um, basically begin what uh, what became secularism in antebellum America, where I basically took about eight or nine pages from the dissertation in which I think I talk about Lewis Henry Morgan and the culture concept um, in my dissertation. And I just be- began to sort of, you know, untangle that a little bit. And uh, from there, it basically kind of threw me into this world of, of history a little bit, not uh, not simply because I was interested, but I have to say at the beginning of the project, I was trying to to establish myself as an American religious historian um, because in our field, uh, in the field of American religious history or American religions, um, it's very difficult to get a job if you're 
not a recognizable historian of a tradition, of a religious tradition that everybody understands and knows about, and that's what you do. Um, to sort of come at it from an oblique angle, like I do religion and culture, and I'm interested in Melville, or I'm interested in the beats, or I'm interested in some sort of cultural thematic like technology, um, that's not the, the sort of best strategy by which you convince you know, people who don't study American religion that you study American religion. <laughs> and so uh, at the beginning of the project, it was a, a little bit of strategy, job strategy, but it was also just uh, a kind of desire to sort of flip the dissertation where it wasn't going to be a reception history of Moby Dick, the way in which Moby Dick resonated, um, let's say, in the 20th century with various sort of individuals and, and, and cultural problems, but to try to turn that around a little bit and think about the way what is the history of, what's this, what's the sort of history below Moby Dick? What is the sort of history, the scene of writing that allowed Melville to write what he wrote, to think what he thought, and to imagine what he imagined? And so that's how the project sort of turned from a, a dissertation that was much more of a literary sort of uh, kind of project on reception to um, what you might call a kind of, uh, I don't know, um, cultural infrastructure um, of, of, of Moby Dick. Now, um, Moby Dick, you, you come back to, to this uh, book throughout your, your narrative. Um, and you, you don't kind of just use it as a historical point, right? A placement that we can say, here's a, here's a time that we're going to look at. Um, can you kind of flesh out how, uh, Melville and Moby Dick, uh, how, how use them as a kind of a almost way of thinking about, uh, U.S. religious history in the mid 19th century? Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's it does stem from this idea that I I, I was trying to tell a story uh, about the conditions that that enabled Melville to do what he did. Because I, in a lot of ways, I, as you see from the book and evidence from the book, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Melville. Um, I, I think he really was, uh, you know, uh, an amazing writer and thinker and critic of, of his culture in a way that. Um, he's very honest and open about his, the imminent critique that he offers. You know, he doesn't at any point ever claim to be outside it. In a lot of ways, Moby Dick is kind of a meditation or amusing on, on, on that kind of problem. And so I was very attractive, attracted to the kind of style of thinking that Melville offered, particularly in his book, Moby Dick. And so, you know, when I get into this project and, 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 you know, I have this, you know, a lot of Melville in my head, a lot of Moby Dick after having written a dissertation. And I began to sort of, you know, go into various archives and, 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 to, and, and to create and to amass an archive of historical materials from the mid 19th century, trying to think about, you know, what is going on in the culture that allows Melville to think of a, a figure like Captain Ahab or, for example, a, a piece that I make a big deal about in my book, Many Places, to sort of set an opening scene in which the narrator, the unreliable narrator of Ishmael, is sort of walking down the street and sees this handbill that announces not only a past war um, and uh, a kind of uh, controversy over presidential elections, uh, but also in a way it, it, it talks about how, you know, young Ishmael to go on a whale journey. A whaleman's journey, right? This idea that the media could be predicated, right? And to sort of think about these kinds of problems, 
was basically an inspiration for, I guess, my historical imagination, right? To, to sort of, to sort of, to gravitate toward issues or particularly moves or moments in that book, uh, I think framed uh, the, the ways in which I thought about the archive. And, and to be honest, obviously, what I found in the archive and what I looked for in the archive and what I noticed and did not notice in the archive. And so in many ways, Melville functions as an inspiration, but in a lot of ways, the book itself, I, I try to be very open and honest about this. This is a particular history of antebellum America, and it's a particular history that is indebted to I think the the vision of, of of Herman Melville in a lot of ways, which I think a lot of people might hear that and be like, "Well, that's Jen, just a kind of," and then we don't need to listen to it because you know who who thinks of Herman Melville as an historian of American religion? But as I try to make the case, there there's there's great insight here, not only from the perspective of let's say 1851, but if you read um, Herman Melville in light of let's say the last 40 years of uh, historiography or philosophy or, or reading people like Derrida or Foucault or Deserteau, um, you begin to sort of appreciate, uh, I, I think, the way in which Melville was very anticipatory of some of the cultural and political and social issues that were on the horizon in his time that I think really do sort of lay themselves bare in the 20th century. And uh, just for for listeners, I should say if you if you are going to buy this book, you'll probably want to just buy Moby Dick as well because you'll either want to read it or reread it uh, after after reading Secularism in Antebellum America. I think uh, you make a case for for rethinking this this story uh, for a modern reader. Um, just uh, let me let me again mention the title and on the cover. I, I don't know if I, I don't know how you would label this. Uh, if it, I don't really think it's a subtitle, but uh, the cover of the book it's, has the title "Secularism in Antebellum America," uh, and then there's a, a almost an advertisement of sorts. It says, uh, "With reference to ghosts, Protestant subcultures, machines, and their metaphors, featuring discussions of mass media, Moby Dick, spirituality, phrenology, anthropology, Sing Sing State Penitentiary, and sex with the new mode of power." Um, so you were talking about a lot of different stuff that uh, I think very few would also place in the same conversation. Um, so to kind of follow up on your your uh, discussion of when you were creating your archive, you in in the book I think you call them novel experiences, and you talk about you're looking for the local effects of secularism, which we'll we'll get to, uh, rather than the causes of secularism. So. When you were going out and doing the research, what exactly were you looking for? How 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 did you find things that you thought would fit into this narrative? Uh, how, how did you go about doing the, the research uh, before you even had this project kind of formulated, I guess? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think it develops over time, right? I mean, at the very beginning of the project, you know, it was simply I kind of moved from thinking about Lewis Henry Morgan. And being okay, Lewis Henry Morgan, and thinking about this mid nineteenth century, you know, armchair—not armchair, but uh, kind of budding—you know—anthropologist who is hanging out with the Iroquois uh, and, and thinking about their life ways and trying to sort of uh, do a, a kind of study uh, of their culture. 
who is also a lawyer, who is also will become involved in a kind of expansion of the railroads um, into the Midwest, who will um, also strangely sort of involved in in a kind of language, at least, of spirituality, talking about the spirituality of the Iroquois. And so just in my deep reading of Lewis Henry Morgan, you begin to see these pieces like, okay, you know, you, you, and I haven't begun thinking about spirituality really, or for that matter, you know, my chapter on evangelical media at that point. Um, but he's buddies with this guy named McIlvain who writes this, uh, he's a pres- Presbyterian minister who writes a book called Voluntary Attention uh, about basically a track talking uh, about um, how to read the Bible and, and talking about the sort of proper mode of attention uh, a true believer, somebody who's truly religious, must have when they approach a religious text. And so you can begin to see, okay, what, wow, voluntary attention, what's going on there? That's a really interesting concept, a, a book to instruct you to have voluntary intention, attention, and then begin to, from that, get into the track societies and the kind of massive uh, mediation that they provided in the early to mid-19th century, providing Bibles and religious tracts to everybody, and so on and so forth. And so in a lot of ways, uh, it wasn't until the very end where this book really does come together in a lot of ways. Um, at a certain point, and I think this is true, I mean, this is true for my work, I think, in a lot of ways. I, I like not to have, uh, you know, I'm not the kind of kid who writes out the you know, the outline before the paper is done, you know, you know, like the classic way I tell our students, right? <laughs> Thesis statement, four paragraphs, each have each paragraph, you know, providing a point of evidence, and then the conclusion, and somehow, you know, that before you're done. And I, I that's just not my method in a lot of ways, I kind of, um, I take a chance, I take a leap of faith, that the archive will provide, the archive will provide. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think my method does um, correspond to perhaps the content. And as you mentioned, you know, a lot of disparate, you know, seemingly disparate items, right, coming together in one place um, is, is precisely, I, you know, it's kind of what I would like to do, because in a lot of ways, my book is about secularism, right? It's about a, a discursive formation, um, discourse in the Foucauldian sense of this kind of um, unimaginable, massive, um, what you might call it, I don't know, a logic, a kind of a logic of compatibility that allows things like machines and their metaphors and various Protestant subcultures and ghosts and the emergence of phrenology and anthropology and, you know, prison reform at, at Sing Sing and different kinds of uh, new ways in which in, individuals are interacting with machines. Well, what do these have in common? Well, that is the outstanding question of the book that it provides the answer there is there is a discursive formation which is which i try to label secularism but as soon as i do that i also understand that secularism doesn't really exist and it's not a thing out there in the world that is holding all this together and on some level it's it's the conceit that i have it's my vision of the archive that allows it to cohere but at the same time it it does exist and if you look at the kind of preponderance of evidence that I provide in various footnotes and long quotes from the archive of the mid-19th century, you begin to scratch your head in a way when you think about evangelicals and spiritualists and anthropologists and prison reformers, you know, all in a sense on the same discursive page in so many ways. 
And, and so in a lot of ways, that's the kind of, that's, that's the sort of take home effect that I would like the book to have a little bit. Not that I nail something for all time, or I prove something for all time that can never be disproved, but to allow the reader uh, to to sort of begin to sort of see these connections and to judge for themselves, I guess, whether, you know, what to make of them or, or what to do with them. And I think my wager is that if they do take it seriously, they'll begin to look at other books about a similar time period in the 19th century or books in American religious history that uh, put forward different visions of religion or different visions of the way religious history operates in America or a different vision of what it means to be human and I think I, you know, I will, I will stand by my book and say, you know what, I think I have a convincing case to make about what it means to be human in, in the mid-19th century and also what it means to be human right now. And it doesn't look like a lot of books that I read in my field. So um, that's kind of where that, uh, that, 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 that the method, uh, my archival method sort of meets the content of, of what I did in secularism. Uh, perhaps you could take some time to... Uh, flesh out what you mean by secularism. And maybe you could frame this uh, within kind of the broader context of how people who are even considered experts in the study of secularism, how they define it. Because you you take a a kind of a different approach, and I'm sure even people within the field of religious studies more generally – might might not be aware of all these nuances. So could you take okay. a moment and, and, and relate to that? Uh, you talk about the metaphysics of secularism. So uh, how, how is that related or how does that help you examine this? Well, okay, let's start with the second question first, just to sort of frame it. You know, in a lot of ways, secularism, is, as I mentioned, not in the book, but also in some pieces sort of responding to various reviews or critiques of the book. You know, secularism is a word. Right, that that I provide, and you know, and also other scholars have uh, provided to try to get some analytical ev- leverage upon, you know, uh, uh, different aspects of modernity. Different aspects of modernity, particularly having to do with religion and its so-called antitheses. Right, and so, um, and so, for me, when I talk about secularism as a discourse. Uh, I, I'm thinking about basically I define it loosely as a conceptual environment in which um, religion is defined, practiced, lived out, policed, etc., etc., in the way in which religion as a concept is defined and lived out and policed. Uh, and so when I, when I, that's a very broad and sort of general definition, but what it does, I think, is that it's very much in concert with um, a kind of version of, of thinking about modernity that Talal Assad provides in his formations of the secular, as well as some of the earlier work, particularly those, uh, those, those essays published in Genealogies of Religion, I believe, in 1993. It's also, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, my book is not antithetical to something like Charles Taylor's The Secular Age, right, in which Charles Taylor... I think quite rightly, uh, you know, writes a book saying, you know, hey, the secular age is not about the absence or the decline or the disappearance of religion. That's not that's not what the secular age is all about. And 
It's, it's about the way, it's about the particular way in which religion gets framed as a problem, as a possibility for individuals that he is after. And his, his great question is a question that I also begin my book with. What does it feel like to live in a secular age? But unlike Charles Taylor, who I think, and I write about this a lot, particularly in various essays I have um, on the website, The Imminent Frame, in which I think most of my essays are somehow directed against Charles Taylor on this point, in which Charles Taylor thinks one of the great uh, sort of um, uh, the effects or, or, or results of the secular age has been the formation of what he calls a buffered self. And the buffered self being a self that is, in a sense, free to choose, a self that is somehow at least uh, ostensibly immune to uh, external forces um, on some level. A classic kind of Enlightenment Cartesian Lockean sort of self is the kind of great benefit of of the secular age. Um, It has its problems, Taylor obviously acknowledges, but it's something that uh, has happened. And for me... Um, you know, when I think of secularism, I, I think of the way in which, yes, there's been a buffer itself has been um, very much part of the imagination, particularly of Americans from the 19th to the 20th to the 21st century, um, has been very much part of the imagination, has been very much part of the way in which uh, the culture has advertised itself to itself. Um but it's also, uh, I think, very much of a, a kind of advertisement or, or, or a way, a story that individuals tell themselves in order to be themselves. And so for me, it's not about the creation of a buffered self. It's more about um, the kind of conjuring of the sort of truth of a buffered self that is not necessarily true at all, but it's something that allows for a lot of uh, kind of political, social, epistemic work to be done in its name. And so when I think of, you know, when I think of secularism, for me, it's about, it's about the way in which individuals convince themselves that they're religious or not, right? And, and so in a lot of ways, I don't, I, I, I don't want to sort of stand still and say, well, an individual's like this. I always kind of want to keep my historical actors moving. And the way in which I sort of see myself moving in the 21st century the way in which life is sort of constantly lived, and there's a, a constant process of conviction and reflection that must go on. And so for me to think about secularism is to sort of use that as an analytical wedge to get underneath the processes and, and the powers and, and, and the kinds of events that allow individuals to convince themselves that they are religious or not, or perhaps that they're indifferent to religion, they have no relationship to religion, but whatever, however they sort of shake out, uh, there's a way in which I'm thinking that secularism is a nice way to think about how all those three individuals perhaps as sort of types are related to each other, right? And, and so you, you think about the contemporary situation right now, you think about, well, you know, kind of stereotypes of, you know, a sort of, you know, post-moral majority you know, fundamentalist leader who is, you know, decrying gay marriage and abortion and whatnot. And then on the other side, you have like somebody like Daniel Dennett or a new atheist who is decrying the fundamentalist, who is decrying gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when you look at these two individuals who on some level are very much at the opposite 
ends of a political spectrum. And I, I have to acknowledge that they're, they're making different arguments about similar things. But at another level of analysis, they share a lot in common about what it means to be human, particularly let's go back to that buffered self idea. Uh, and, and so for me, I'm really interested in the way in which those two types are, are, are similar or compatible, right? Um, and for me, secularism allows investigations into those compatibilities, right? Um, that I think is is a, a, an interesting level of analysis, analysis because you begin to sort of see um, other things. You begin to tell other kinds of stories. You begin to see religion differently than you did before. Religion is not simply about um, intentionally good actions or intentionally bad actions. Religion is 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 something that um, perhaps is neither good nor bad, but something people um, convince themselves that they do that reflects upon the way in which they are agents and not in the culture that contains them. Um, and re- so, related to this, uh, if I if I'm reading you correctly, um, the idea of of ghosts or haunting. Uh, plays a very significant part in kind of articulation of either our religiousness or our, our non-religiousness. Um, can, can you, and uh, for, for me, it seems like there's this uh, relationship between agency, uh, but also structural forces, which it seems like you're critiquing a lot of people uh, for, for, for failing to recognize these, that, U.S. religious history has been told mainly through the lens of uh, of personal agency. Uh, so, if, if I read you incorrectly, please correct me. Uh, but if not, can you talk a little bit about this relationship between agency and then kind of outside hauntings that force us to to think in particular ways? Yeah. No. I think yes. I I I agree. I agree. That is a good assessment. In my introduction to my book, I'm not going to name names on air, but if you want to. If you want to know the books that I'm kind of <laughs> and kinds of traditions of American religious history that that I'm really sort of setting my book up against. I mean, I am pretty I try to be clear about that in my introduction where religion is about agency. Religion is uh, a kind of engine in America, American history for increased agency, increased freedom, increased diversity, you know, more pluralism, more cosmopolitanism. Um everything that's good in the world and all the bad stuff that's also good in the world because we live in a liberal democracy and we need to accept the bad people too, right? There's this kind of triumphal narrative that, uh, you know, you, you can see very clearly across the spectrum um, for the last hundred years in American religious history that, you know, it's not total. It, it's not all over the place, but it's, it's dominant enough to, I think, have, have produced a paradigm. And, and so, very much my, my book is, is sort of uh, positioned against that. And, and as you mentioned, I use enchantment in, uh, as, as a way to sort of, um, I guess, tell, tell a different kind of story. But in telling a different kind of story, to, t- to tell, to sort of, I, th- I think in a lot of ways, to flesh out, well, what kinds of people do I assume lived in the past, right? I mean, I think this is something that is not talked about in historical circles enough particularly religious history circles in which, you know, you're writing a book or writing a article or writing some kind of narrative about real people who have lived, really lived in the past. Um, 
you know, what kinds of people, what, what does it mean to live in the world, this world, right? I mean, are, is there such a thing as a buffered self? Is it possible to be transparent to yourself? Can you be clear on what you're thinking and why in the world, right? Are there possibilities for freedom and, and, and pure choice and intentionality in this world? Or are there not? And if not, well, what else is there, right? I mean, these kinds of questions that perhaps, um, you know, sort of go into more sort of philosophical debates, these are, these are questions that I think need to be at least broached by the historian who's, you know, calling uh, or at least claiming to tell stories about individuals. And so for me, enchantment is a baseline, right? Some people have read me as, as arguing about, you know, you know, advocating or somehow talking about the re-enchantment of the world. And uh, I'm very insistent that uh, I don't think there's anything such such thing as re-enchantment, right? Um, I, I think enchantment does not have an opposite, despite what various individuals will call the disenchantment of modernity. Um, because getting back to your, your sort of central part of your question, secularism, I you know, I approach the secularization thesis um, kind of from an odd angle, you know, because you know that, that thesis itself, right, is loaded, right? There's a kind of specific iteration of the kind of modernization narrative that is built upon a lot of nostalgia, a lot of sentimentality. It sort of conceives of modernity as a kind of radical break as a moment of maturity or perhaps, you know, you know, the inverse of that, a moment of immaturity, but somehow a way in which it's a radical break. Of, it's a moment when reason comes to know itself for better or for worse, particularly over and against, and this is something that perhaps Charles Taylor makes too much of, a kind of primitive, enchanted past in which ghosts were real and, and uh, in which we didn't have the choice to be religious or not or something like that. And I just think that's incredibly, I, I just I just find that incredibly short-sighted. I, I just don't see history working that way. I don't think they're at this radical break uh, from those who came before to those who came to us. I don't think we're more free now uh, or more rational now exactly. And, and I think you you begin to sort of undermine, you know, entire paradigmatic frames of narrating American religious history, or for that matter, narrating modernity, if you begin to sort of tinker with these sort of fundamental assumptions, and you begin to begin to tinker with these fundamental assumptions about what it means to be human, or what is, you know, what is the nature of, of historical change um, over the past 500 years, if you begin to sort of just qu- call into question some of the basic assumptions that have undergirded many narratives in American religion, but also sociology um, and anthropology, you begin to tell a different kind of story uh, about, about human beings, about religion or secularity or whatever, what have you. But you begin to tell a different kind of story, one that does not correspond necessarily to the benchmarks laid out by hundreds of years of American religious history, which for the most part is still very much haunted, to use a, a loaded term, by the ghost of you know denominational church history from the 19th century that sees religion where it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't ask question about where religion is or where it's not. It's it's self-evident what religion is, and it's self-evident what 
a human being is, and it's self-evident what cognition is, um, and, and it's and it's self-evident that common sense and Scottish common sense, particularly in the American grain, is the end-all, be-all of what it means to be a cognitive human being. Even though you might not have ever read, you know, uh, you know Francis Hutchinson or DeGault Stewart. There's a way in which common sense has worked its way in so thoroughly um, that these narratives have become very entrenched to the point where people don't even recognize how entrenched they are. And so part of the way in which I use haunting is a way to at least disrupt that from the very beginning by laying my cards on the table that I, I, I you know, I have not, I'm not convinced by the bufferedness of cells. I am not convinced by arguments that we are disenchanted. Um, I am not convinced um, uh, uh, by the tenets and the promise of common sense cognition in which I can become um, transparent to myself if I think about my thinking long and hard enough. I just don't think, I just, I just, you know, I, 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 all I can say is I don't, I don't believe in that. Um, <laughs> uh- now, I wanted to talk about your writing a little bit. Um, this is – it's a difficult book to, to read. Um, and I, I don't really even know how to describe what you're doing uh, that makes it, makes it difficult to read. Um, but you, that's, you- that's, that's not a good advertisement. <laughs> Uh, it's like okay, no, no, don't, don't. Anything Christian just said, it's it's very clear. Uh, most people stop listening at this point. So, <laughs> uh, so you 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 talk you you kind of explicitly talk a little bit about what you're doing. You you call it, I think, uh, you you talk about a mode of storytelling and a performance of uh, systematicity. And I think at one point you even say you're you're doing an exercise in unreason. Um, so. Uh, Perhaps you could talk a little bit about um, how you write, because uh, if I'm interpreting this all correctly, you're you're writing in a particular way to elicit uh, a certain state of being. Yes. Yes. So, so yes. Could, so could you you talk a little bit about how, how you're writing? Uh, perhaps uh, you you've found a better way to kind of articulate what you're doing. Uh, and then what, why you're doing this? What kind of a, a effect do you think this will have? Yeah, no, okay. Um, yeah, it's really, it really is hard to, it's a very really hard exercise to talk about how you write, right? It's yeah. like, you know, you sort of get into the mode and it's just kind of how I write. And, and in a lot of ways, I don't, and it's become second na- so second nature to me that I hardly recognize it anymore. But, you know, it's kind of going back to what I was just saying. I think there's a way in which, you know, I, this is increasingly happening in our field where people are laying their cards on the table, right? This is what I think about the world, right? You know, it, you know, it's it, this, and, and and this is how I think reality is, and this is how it operates. And 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 to say that is not religious or not. Some people would be like, "Oh, that's that's theological." You know, I mean, what well, what is that? It's honesty, right? It's as if other scholars or other scientists don't have, you know, deeply held views about the, 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 the way in which reality works and how they might live in light of that conception of reality? Of course they do, right? Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, my writing, I would hope, is some kind of reflection of my, you know, commitment to, you know, you know notions of enchantment, 
tragedy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, going back to, going back to, again, the sort of center of this book, the sort of secret center is Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And so, you know, which is to say, you know, the, the, you know, I begin to think maybe if I can kind of press a little bit more. Um, it, uh, it, this book, it doesn't follow kind of tradition, traditional scholarly form, right? Um, and I guess what I mean by that is you kind of don't know where you are or where you're going until you get there, um, which I think is counter to a lot of other, to, 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 to other academic books, right? Yeah. As you're saying, right? We say, this is the thesis. These are my, you know, sections. This is where I'm going. Now I'll tell you what I just did, right? You don't do yeah. that. Um, and part of that, you do that through these long quotations and, and uh, you know, continually uh, using uh, the, the ways people are articulating things uh, from the moment. Um, so I guess our, uh, maybe just simply, are, do you think, uh, are, are you trying to critique traditional scholarly presentations of our research? Do you think that there, it's problematic in doing that in a more traditional way or – I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's perhaps there. It's certainly not something that I didn't sit down to write a book, you know, to, to, to write in a way that would critique. I, I mean, I would want the content of what I'm trying to say to critique, you know, um, to do that. And so I didn't sit down to strategically do that. But there's a way in which, again, that, that I mean, the way in which you just articulated the sort of readerly experience of finding oneself overwhelmed by by, by, by various issues, and then all of a sudden arriving at a place and being like, oh, uh, uh, this is what it is, or I'm here now, right? And not having a kind of uh, sort of somebody hold your hand and walk you through page by page exactly what you did. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that's, that, that makes me feel good. That's exactly where I want the reader to be, right? Um, because it comes down to something as simple and as almost selfish as to say, those are the kinds of books I like to read. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, like, I mean, you know, we're in this, we're in this game, this profession of, of, of academia, right? And there is certain kinds of formal expectations about how you present your ideas. And there's a conceit that I think that is sort of usually unstated that there is a, a kind of certainty and clarity and assurance uh, that is being manifest on the page for you, dear reader, to internalize and to take in. And if you do so in just the right way, you too will know what the author knows. And you too will become expert and certain and sure and assured in the same kind of way. Well, I, I just think, you know, first of all, those, those narratives bore me, right? I mean, you know, you know, you've read, you, you know, you know, you, you go to the journal, right? And you read the abstract. And by the end of 150 words, you know exactly what this article is about, right? You, d you didn't go to that archive, right? You don't know exactly, you know, every little detail, but it's so formulaic, right? Because it's so driven by these various conceits of our, of our professional sort of um, activities in which things need to be condensed and should be, in a, to be condensed and they need to be condensed into a 150-word abstract. And, and that is not a game that I, you know, want to participate in. Uh, it's, not, it's something that I perhaps reluctantly participate in at various times. But I just don't think that's the way 
I just don't think the world works that way. And, and which is not to say, you know, I, I do, you know, acknowledge the argument that what scholarship does is to simplify the complexities of our world to somehow make clear those things that are not clear. Of course, that's what we do. But that doesn't mean to uh, simplify them to such a degree as to um, basically sort of, I guess you might say, disestablish um, their sort of nagging inexorable complexity, right? And, and, and so in a way in which I don't want to simplify complexity, but I want to present complexity in a less complex way. Yeah, maybe that might be the fairest, fairest assessment. But in, in terms of, in terms of writing, um, you know, in a lot of ways, that's, you know, you know, there are, there are moments when I try to, I use repetition a lot in terms of phrases and in terms of, um, sort of general themes uh, that I, I, I like to use to sort of give the reader a sort of second level anchor. And as you know, my book is incredibly dense with footnotes um, that I also would hope to offer the reader a kind of, you know, lifeline a little bit if he, if she or he gets lost at any point in the book. You can always sort of take solace and take comfort in the traditional form of, 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 of the footnote. Yeah, another thing that you do uh, that I find somewhat unique, especially for historians, is you focus a lot on kind of the symbolic or the metaphorical use of language in creating particular narratives. And in the book, there's lots. You talk about kind of mechanical and biological and sexual. Uh, so uh, not, not everyone's doing this. So what, what do you think this kind of analysis can reveal to us? What it can by using by by being attentive to the 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 way in which yeah. metaphors are used by historical actors. Yes, okay. Because um, I I feel like that was a, a a strong component in each of the chapters. Yes. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I think. I mean, I I I would I would say most. I mean, a lot of historians do sort of. And so, what I can you be more clear about what you think I'm doing that's different from other historians in terms of accounting for the language of historical actors. Um, the way you're constructing, uh, the narratives from these first person accounts, I guess, mm -hmm. is, uh, you almost kind of embody their language, uh, throughout yes. the storytelling. Um, but then you're, you're taking kind of a critical eye to it, which, uh, and, and thinking about what perhaps using a sexual, uh, type metaphor or a mechanical or technological metaphor is going to express from that person's perspective. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, no, I definitely, definitely. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, Winnie Sullivan has a um, a blurb on the back of my book in which she calls, she uses a strange word. Um, she says somehow my, 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 my history or my story or my narrative is, is generous. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think, you know, I would like to think what she means by that. I, I think I do know what she means by that. It is the idea that I am sort of taking historical testimony of the people I'm looking at seriously, really seriously, you know, and I'm not in a way so seriously that I do begin to adopt uh, their sort of grammatical tics and, and begin to repeat what they repeat in their testimony about what it feels like to live in, you know, Northeast America in 1851 and, you know, and so there's this way in which I use their testimony and I think I begin to sort of mimic 
um, their language uh, of, 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 of mechanization, of, of uh, begin to mimic their visions and their sort of sensibility of being haunted by, um, by, by, by various forces in 1851. And, and, and by in, in doing that, my, my goal is to just at the most basic rudimentary level to sort of take seriously my historical sources. And I think the first lesson in taking them seriously is to, to do as much as possible to begin to break down um, whatever barriers have been constructed that would convince you, the historian, that you are somehow different from these people, that you are somehow more enlightened than they are, somehow that, that because you have the Internet or you know, have, have all these books that you can read that were published after 1851 that somehow, somehow you know more, you're more rational or, or somehow you're, you're more enlightened or you're superior or, or, or whatever from these individuals. And, and I think that's, you know, that for me, there is this kind of, you know, in, in terms of a, a relationality that, I, I would I would idealize ideally like to establish between my voice and their voice, and I and I think if you can do that in such a way, uh, you, it's going to be very interesting because not only will you have on one hand uh, a kind of insight I think into what is you know what these individuals are talking about, how they're talking about it, why they're talking about the way they're talking about it, but also obviously you can't escape your skin, you can't escape your own moment that you're inevitably going to bring. Um, various questions about the present to the past. And, you know, there's a way in which ideally I can sort of have my cake and eat it too, where not only do I think I am getting at something that really did happen in 1851, but I'm also allowing um, the space of my book to contain both the sort of temporal reality of 1851, but also obviously acknowledge that the framing of that reality is very much informed by the contemporary reality of my writing desk. Uh, now, there's so much to this book, which uh, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Uh, we need to, yeah, we need to talk about the new mode of power. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's what's going to sell the book, right? If we, we talk, talk about, about anything. Yeah, uh, talk about somebody fucking a machine. It happens to, <laughs> that's what happened. To, I'm not going to reveal any secrets, but you can look forward to that, dear reader. If you buy the book, and you'll be able to sort of, you know, wait for it's coming on, on page 300. It's going to happen. Sex with the new mode of power. Yeah. Can, can you tell us about this? Can you give us a little <laughs> preview? Yeah. This, no. this, you're right. This might be what makes them go out and buy the books. No, 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 no. This is my last. Uh, the book ends with this vision or I guess a, a, a story uh, about this, about this uh, guy named John Murray Spear who um, was uh, – um, interesting guy who uh, lived in the mid uh, 19th century, and uh, he uh, is a Universalist minister, at least trained as a Universalist minister. And uh, he's sort of leaning towards spiritualism um, and all the various sort of political reforms that sort of often accompany spiritualism: abolitionism, prison reform, women's rights. He'll eventually form a commune after this incident that I'm about to tell you. But in 18 um, I think in 1852 or 1853, he received a spirit communique from Benjamin Franklin um, uh, that, among other things, gave John Spear uh, instructions to build a perpetual motion machine. And he instructed John Murray Spear to gather 
associates and to go up to High Rock in Lynn, Massachusetts, and to build what is called a new motive power, which was going to be um, a perpetual motion machine that would be that would initiate its power um, by uh, ritualistic practices that would consummate the relationship between the human world, the spirit world, and the mechanical world. And uh, so you have this kind of uh, framing of a menage a trois between matter, spirit, and machine that I won't reveal it, but John Murray Spear takes it seriously, and so too does his earthly associates. And they write about it in great, great detail. <laughs> and uh, yes, the book the book is worth the wait to to get <laughs> so that's to that thing. scene. Don't read that right away. It's just got to be. Yeah, a, you have to wait. You got to wait. Um. So with a little, I, I mean, uh, compared to the, many of the other authors I've interviewed, you you have a lot of space between uh, when this book came out and, and probably when you wrote it uh, till now. There's been a lot of reactions to the book. Um, and I'm wondering if after thinking about what people have said, critiques and comments, um, if there's things you would have done differently or things that you would have liked to express more clearly or things you would have liked to, uh, (laughs) make more unclear. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, I have to say, I'm really happy with the book, the way it is as a, as an, as a writerly object, but you know, there are. There are a few chapters that, you know, in an ideal world, it's already a fairly long and dense book. Um, there's a few chapters that just didn't make it into the book and a lot of ways got left out. And, and uh, you know, I always think about publishing them at some future date as kind of addendums and perhaps reflections upon this work. But it's too soon, I think. But yeah. one, is, uh, one is basically on uh, the kind of riffing off the character of Father Mapple in Moby Dick. Um, the, he gives a sermon very early on in the narrative um, where Ishmael attends the Whaleman's Chapel and there's this kind of performative guy, even a preacher at a, at a, at a, a, sail, a sailor's Bethel who gives this kind of amazing sort of sermon on Job. And uh, the chapter would be basically trying to flesh out, like, well, who is this guy? Who is this Father Mapple? And uh, many... Many different kinds of scholars have talked about uh, the sort of American antecedents to Father Mapple, looking at various sailor preachers on in the Northeast in Boston and 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 Nantucket. Um, one of the things I discovered in my research is that there's this whole other world to Father Mapple that basically ties in with British colonialism and training of colonial officers who are about to become uh, basically, you know, part of the East Indian Company in India in the mid 19th century, where Herman Melville was very interested in this um, preacher um, whose name was Henry Melville, without the E, who was a very famous sort of performative kind of showman preacher who Melville was able to witness when he went to uh, London in 1850 to sell the rights to White Jacket. And I began doing research on this preacher, Henry Melville, and it turns out he's he was also the sort of uh, rector of uh, Haleybury College um, in, in England, which was the sort of, at the time, one of the main locations where colonial officers were trained. And I think that would add a really interesting dimension to the book in a lot of ways to sort of give it a more, a much more kind of transnational um, kind of feeling to sort of see 
what's happening in America in the mid-19th century is also going on in other places, and, and it's being inflected um, in different ways in different locales as far away, for example, as as uh, the sort of colonial trains of India. Uh, so that's I'll, I'll just leave it there. That's like one place. That's one chapter that you will see sometime, dear <laughs> listener, sometime. Father Mapple and colonialism and evangelicalism in the mid-19th century. Um, now, John, if you don't mind, uh, you, you've been talking for a while, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear kind of what you've been up to and what you have planned for the future. Oh, okay. Well, the future is bright, Christian. It's very bright. <laughs> no, no. Um, so, yeah, it's been – I've been very, very lucky to have – I received um, a grant um, from the Social Science Research Council about uh, about a year and a half ago um, for their New Directions in the Study of Prayer project. And that has given me a tremendous amount of time and space and, and, and money, really, to um, pursue what is – becoming, I guess, my next book. Um, and uh, it's technically on prayer machines and looking at uh, different ways in which prayer um, is mediated by way of, you know, actual machines, um, but also the way in which prayer is mediated by certain kinds of mechanical modes of reasoning, as well as measured um, by different kinds of devices, uh, particularly devices that measure um, cognitive activity, um, for example, electroencephalology, as well as uh, uh, magnetic resonance, resonance imaging, so MRIs and EEG. Um, and so right now, I have, very similar to secularism, I have basically jumped in headfirst into um, an archive which is foreign to me. Um, and so I've been reading a tremendous amount of 20th century, particularly second half of the 20th century cognitive and neuroscientific articles in which there's a lot of math and calculus, which uh, I have had to um, ask many people for help in trying to, you know, get my head around it a little bit. Um, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting project that I think is similar to secularism in the sense that I'm really interested, I think, in thinking about uh, discourse, thinking about the way in which epistemics and politics come together in particular formations in the 20th century to generate categories of the religious and the secular. And so right now, um, I've been, uh, I, I've been sort of neck deep, as it were, in, in the sort of archive of cognitive science and cybernetics and artificial intelligence, much, uh, much, much more located in the second half of the 20th century than I was in, in secularism, in a lot of ways, hearkening back to my first book on the beat poets, um, kind of returning to sort of post-war America and thinking about the sort of strange environment of the Cold War, 60s and 70s, and trying to, trying to, we have an interesting story about the way in which we have come to convince ourselves that we are we are somehow located or tied essentially to um, the fleshy thing that's inside our head. Um, that sounds really interesting, uh, and I, I've seen a couple of the images you've put on online in various places, and it looks like uh, the research must be. <laughs> A, a thrill to do personally as well. So, oh, it's uh, been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. I've been, you know, it has a 19th century vibe. I go back to 
you know, the 19th century, looking at different anthropological theories of prayer and cognition. But I've also added this kind of ethnographic component in which I've been um, graciously accepted um, as a visitor uh, to places like Mind Lab at the University of Aarhus outside of Copenhagen, in which people like Armin Geertz and Andreas Rostov are doing, you know, incredible work on thinking about cognition and religion as well as uh, the laboratory up in Boston University of Patrick McNamara, who's a really interesting neuroscientist who studies religion. And he right now is conducting a study on the way in which patients with early-onset Parkinson's disease cope religiously, and moreover, how perhaps Parkinson's disease affects the way in which they are religious. Um, which is fascinating kind of stuff. And so I've been really, really lucky and, and, um, and uh, to have met um, these individuals who have allowed me to sort of witness them and to see them do the work that they do, to sort of get a real sense of, well, what does it really mean to do cognitive and neuroscientific work in the study of religion right now, right here, right now? Mm. Um, you've also done a lot of stuff online. You were uh, or have been a, kind of an integral part in – uh, the imminent frame and frequencies, and now you're uh, doing a project called Vinyl Prayers. Right? Mm-hmm. What, what's what's Vinyl Prayers all about? Oh, Vinyl Prayers is basically an opportunity to, for me to write about all my vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I have I have a kind of uh, obscene uh, obscene amount of of, uh, of vinyl records, long playing records, and. I have a special attachment to religious vinyl and all its different kinds of guises and forms. And so uh, as part of the, the research grant that I'm on, they've, they've, they've asked each of the, the individuals with grants to create um, a portal for their website, Reverberations, which is part of the Social Science Research Council in which all the participants sort of uh, write about prayer in different kinds of ways. And it's an amazing website. I really Highly recommend checking it out. One of the first portals was done by Bob Orsi on uh, sort of the real presence of prayer. There's a wonderful portal on the materiality of prayer by Andy Blanton, which is really wonderful. And so last summer, I just sort of said, you know what? I want to think about prayer and music and the materiality of vinyl records. And so um, I began this project where it was much, you know, kind of out of the love more than anything to just sort of listen and talk about. But um, I have a, you know, a kind of, you know, in, in the portal, I try to sort of make some sense of prayer of, of the materiality of music and trying to talk about perhaps the religious connotations of listening to vinyl, um, but also to tie it into um, some of the current thinking I'm doing right now in terms of cybernetics and artificial intelligence. And so this is kind of a wonderful opportunity that affords itself um, by, by the medium of the internet, right? Um, so you can go online and listen to the song while you read about the song. And so that's, that's kind of fun to do. So um, I was a really lucky to have been able to do that. Great. Well, well, John, we've taken a lot of your time and we appreciate it. So good luck with all your projects and uh, thanks again for talking with us. Well, Christian, thank you so much. And uh, you know, if you're still listening, thank you for, for sticking with us the whole time. And I have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> must have been must have been very interesting or not at all interesting. Uh, something like that. You've been listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with John Modern about secularism in Antebellum America, which was published with University of Chicago Press in 2011. Thanks for listening.